You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome all you weirdos, angry dwarves, and everyone who misses data pages. It is time for episode number 82 of the Weird Dose of X, the mutant member of your Weird Science Podcast family. I am your somewhat cranky host, Jason, broadcasting as always from the Wrong Turn Studio high atop Stately Weird Science Tower. And joining me today from uh, apparently a time before the fall of the House of X number one was released is my pal Ruben. Hey, Ruben, how the heck are you today? Hey, good. I'm not missing data pages, but I am missing Magneto and the uh, Iron Man issue that we're going to cover has a nice picture of him and reminded me that, hey, there's that cool character that is still dead. Nice. Well, Resurrection of Magneto starts next week, so uh, we'll see what happens with him real soon. But before we get started on this week's issues, I want to address a couple things, really. First, I want to just close the loop on something we kind of left hanging last week. Uh, I was trying to remember which other X-Men character, besides Doug, had also been kind of put on ice and hidden away on Krakoa for safekeeping before the, uh, you know, the whole gala situation. And later that night, uh, Ruben came up with the answer and posted it on the Weird Science Slack, which you all should be reading, by the way. Get on that Patreon. Uh, so, so Ruben, can you ex- explain who this other character was and, and why he might be important? <laughs> I don't know why it came to me, but it was Manifold, our Indeed. aboriginal teleporter who speaks to the universe. But I, I'm going to do a mea culpa, which is it happened in Rogue and Gambit. Was it like issue number five? Oh, number five. It was kind of Nobody should have read that. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like the fact that we remember that at all uh, should get us some street cred in the X-Men community. Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of chatter about that. And, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that one of the redacted, not yet seen members of Professor X's No Place team in Rise of the Powers of X I think one of them has got to be Manifold, right? Yeah. I mean, his powers would help explain how you get the no place into like exactly. outside of time and space. I, I think it fits too too well not to be the case. If it's not him, I'm going to be surprised if it's someone who makes more sense than Manifold. And we got to see him again soon. He was hidden away on Krakoa. Uh, you know, he was done, that was done for a reason. And that reason has to come out pretty soon because there's not that much time left. Uh, it starts to make you think that Krakoa seems to have known the future and – helped sequester these people away to fight against this big threat, well, which is that weird. Is it like Doug. sort of a time? It was Krakoa took initiative to kind of pull Doug down to something like the pit. But it yeah. was Destiny who told Rogue – was it Rogue and uh, Rogue and somebody? It was Destiny who said, hey, we're going to have to hide this guy away. Yeah, it's, if we let him Got go it, to the Destiny. gala, he might die. We're saving his life. And mm-hmm. by doing this, we may be saving everybody's life. So he was putting this little kind of technopod – and yep. kind of submerged somewhere. So that was definitely destiny. Got it. Yeah. Uh, well, she can see the future. That's, that's what I hear. That's her whole deal. Yeah. Uh, that's all she can see, in fact. Uh, so second thing, I'm going to get a little bit of a rant out of the way early and admit to why I'm a little cranky this week. Uh, the theme for this week's issues comes from Matt Razor in the slot. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Don't understand Marvel's thinking with these issues. We're at the end of a, a five-year journey, not to sound too Star Trek, from yeah. Hawks and Pox to Fothox and Rot Pox, right? That's the beginning of the end, Alpha Omega. That's what we're telling. Mm-hmm. In my mind, everything that's coming out of the X office from now through the finale of this status quo should feel big, should be 
should be fit together, should be coordinated, should be all pointing towards wherever the story is going to end up. And these week's books aren't great, and you know, that happens. But to me, the bigger deal is that none of them are at all necessary to the bigger story. And shoving yeah. it out now just derails all the momentum that the line should be building. Am I, am I being too hard on these books? No, it feels very much like a boomerang situation, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was not so excited about Fall of the House of X, and then I got hyped last week about Rise of the Powers of X, and now suddenly we're like boomerang to before both. And yeah, it's like, and I don't really care about this time period. Just move forward. Tell I can me what's imagine happening. that if it was really carefully constructed, you could have events, you know, in in the flashback, illuminating things happening in the future and vice versa. Like if you really yeah. had a, a team working together and structuring things wonderfully, that could be great. But that's not what we get. X-Men and Iron Man already feel outdated on the day that they were published, right? Because Fall of the House of X already shows us that the plan that's being built in these books is not going to win. So why do we care about the details of a failed plan? Yeah. And then the story- I'm a, little, mm-hmm. I'm a little more optimistic than you on that because it is a time travel story. So yes, the, the plan failed in one timeline, but I wouldn't be shocked to see some kind of machinations from Xavier's crew that makes the plan work. In the, I, I hope so. I hope Duggan and company- the, Yeah, you know, the next one. Out. But then the story in Cable has nothing to do with the main narrative at all and could be taking place at any time. I mean, literally any time, given the main character is friggin' Cable. So this just feels like a, a, a side book to a side book. And if it was any good, and we'll discuss whether or not it is, having it come out now is just a, a weird choice. Okay, so that's the end of my rant. I'm going to try to I try to get that out of my system now so I don't do the same rant for every book. But we'll see what happens. Jim can edit out the rest of it. Uh, and, and third, before we get into the individual books, one last overall observation. As I kind of alluded to in the opening, there are no data pages this week. Not a one. Did you notice that? It doesn't really catch my attention when there is or is not a data page. But yeah, I guess maybe we're starting to get people ready for the next era. Yes, because, well, Iron Man, it's not out of the X office, so it, it doesn't have data pages to begin with. But there were no data, data pages in Wolverine last week. Uh, now none in Cable or in X-Men, which, yeah, starts to feel like an editorial mandate, you know, a, a change being made at a level higher than the individual books. Which, again, I'll remind you that the Rise of the Powers of X number one was titled Data Pages. Weird. Kind of funny. Uh, okay, so that's that's my uh, big picture stuff. Now we're going to go on to the first actual book, and that book is Invincible Iron Man number 14, Here Be Mandarin Rings. Written by Jerry Duggan, guest artist Andrea DeVito, colors by Brian Valenza, letters by Joe Caramagna. Uh, there's a lot of events in this issue, right? A lot of stuff happens, and sometimes it feels like it's in fast forward. We really have three separate storylines here. They're not even woven together back and forth. They're told, you know, sequentially. The first is about Tony and Emma on Earth. Second storyline is Riri and Forge in Space. And then we wrap up with a quick look at what Orcus is cooking up. So story one, Tony and Emma. Uh, this story, this issue starts, uh, hey, it starts with a dream sequence, doesn't it? <laughs> God. Isn't that how the last Duggan book we read started back at Fall of the House of X number one? This is you replace data pages, and every every book's going to start with a data and a dream sequence. In a row with a dream sequence. Hmm, yeah, let's let's keep track of that going forward. We see a theme. This is this is the new <laughs> mandate. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this time it's Tony dreaming about getting his ass kicked by Magneto. Uh, so your Magneto appearance. Uh, the idea here, and there is there is an idea behind this. I get it. It's to remind us that technology that Tony developed to fight evil mutants, like well, like Magneto, who used used to be evil, is now being used by Orcus through Phalong to oppress all the mutants. 
Yeah, thematically, pretty decent. Uh, certainly makes more sense to me than the dream and fall of the House of X. It, only two and a half pages. It's it's fine. Just yeah, makes me chuckle to see Duggan using the same gimmick two issues in a row. So Tony wakes up from this nightmare and is uh, let's say comforted by his sorta kind of wife with that comfort taking the form of sorta kind of marital relations. And this isn't quite out of nowhere. We've seen the relationship between Tony and Emma developing for a couple issues now. And I think last time out, we even agreed that we wouldn't mind seeing their fake marriage turning more real and sticking around for a while. So uh, what did you what did you think of this little romantic action between uh, between our two characters? Um, I didn't need it to be like half the book, but <laughs> but nice to see them finding each other. Um, and it's I think they've done the groundwork where it didn't feel like out of left field. I mean, they even had a scene where at some point in the past, she was like talking about she was only really attracted to intellectual folks. And I'm like, OK, well, yeah, that's Tony. So, yeah, we, we saw this. Uh, we saw I was going to say we saw this coming, but uh, that's inappropriate. We saw this headed down uh, the, you know, the storyline. It, it makes sense. It, it, so, uh, yeah, they were only about a third of the way through this issue of Iron Man. But this is the last we see of Tony and Emma, other than like some caption boxes taken from his future memoir that we've been getting for this, this whole series. Uh, story number two is Riri and Forge. So now we head out to space where we thought that Riri and Forge were about to be attacked by a McLuhan space dragon for the crime of her wearing the Mandarin's rings, which are McLuhan technology that include the spirits of dead space dragons. But it turns out that the dragon isn't threatening her, it's warning her. It tells Riri that those rings themselves are a risk to her that they're necessarily corrupting. Very much like the Middle Earth one ring, but times ten. A decent twist, nice quick resolution to the Space Dragon cliffhanger, which I predicted would be a, a quick resolution, so I'm happy about that. Although it would have been fun to see how Andrea DeVito would have drawn a Riri versus Space Dragon you know, space battle. That could have been cool, because I, I like the way uh, uh, the dragon gets drawn. And Riri recruits Forge, who she just happened to run into in the middle of outer space, uh, to come with her to, uh, you know, Forge comes with her to this Forge, which makes sense. I mean, right there in the name. Uh, specifically, she's going to the Dwarven Forge on the Davalia. I think I said that. There's some weird art stuff here, I will say, though. Uh, if you look at Riri, like every other panel, she's wearing black gloves or like berry ants. So I, I don't really know what's going on there. Big, yeah. In space? Right? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, she's wearing an Iron Man-ish. She's wearing her armor, right? Yeah. So, I mean, do they like retract or something? Is that the that, idea? That's what I'm thinking because it, it clo- goes in on her hand to show the Mandarin rings. So maybe if she's going to use those rings or threaten someone with those rings, she retracts the the armor gloves. I think that's fine. I'm, I'm going to call it fine anyway. Uh, <laughs> not so, the biggest uh, issue. It just yeah, seems I mean, weird to me. Certainly not the it. biggest continuity issue we're going to talk about this week. <laughs> not even this issue. Uh, so uh, this is next time we, we go to Nadavalier. Make me say that again. Thanks which is one of the nine realms, specifically the one that the dwarves are from. And it, I guess it's where Emma arranged to have a whole bunch of Mysterium shipped to. It seems weird to me. We don't actually ever get to see all that raw Mysterium, not even like in the background of a panel somewhere. We, we haven't seen a whole lot of it ever. It'd be cool just to see a, a big old mountain of, of Mysterium. Uh, Riri was supposed to meet up with a dwarf named Atri, who was the, the guy who crafted Mjolnir, but well, turns out Atri's away on dwarven business, and instead they meet a dwarf named uh, Zlusk, or Zlusk, who is a new character. Uh, Zlusk is welcoming, but kind of a little skeptical of his visitors. And the problem for Forge and Riri is that the dwarven forges aren't currently operational. A footnote points to recent issues of Carnage. 
Uh, I have not been reading that book. Ruben, you have any idea no, what's going on here? Not at all. Yeah. I used to be a huge Carnage fan and just haven't really kept up with it. So yeah. I, know I didn't even know the- there was a Carnage series. Yeah, it's it's changed writers a little bit. I think Al Ewing was on it for a while. It was one of those was going back and forth with him and Rom V for a bit, and I think it may have changed again. Uh, again, I'm not keeping up. I know that the Dwarven Forge was hit during the Donny Cates Thor run several years back, so I don't know if this is still having to do with that or if it's a, a brand new thing. They got messed up in Loki also. Wow, it's a tough place to be, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good place. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Riri is confident that she can relight a Dwarven Forge better than the dwarves can. And I, I guess she's right, although we don't get to see how, because we now have our, our first big time jump on the issue uh, many days later. Not X weeks, not X months, just vague, hand-waving many days. And the work's all done, right? They relit the forge. They they did whatever they needed to do with the Mysterium. They built everything needed to, to build. Uh, up above, we see portions of ships in that trademark red and yellow Iron Man colors. And, and not on this page, but later on, we see that there are five ships and they're shaped, uh, you know, some of you see shapes in clouds and you have to imagine, oh, that's an elephant, that's a hedgehog. These are very clearly two arms, two legs, and a torso. So no doubt, a few issues from now, these are going to get Voltron together into some giant you know, Stark, you know, Stark Sentinel Buster something. Some giant fighting robot is going to happen. Yeah, I like it. I, I didn't actually notice that, so. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm yeah, just like, you, Orcus would have been fooled, but that's. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at the picture on page 21, when they're all actually lined up. Okay, yeah, it's more is, clear. This is yeah. Voltron ready to happen. So now we get a brief fight between our heroes and Zelusk the Angry Dwarf. We just need a fight scene, I guess. Uh, they say that Zeus wants to steal the Mysterium and the secret of forging the Mysterium, uh, and our heroes quickly win, and the other thing that happens here is that Riri gets that whole dark influence of the rings happen to her, nearly murders the dwarves to death, uh, until Forge convinces her to, to chill the heck out. And have we seen any influence of the rings on her before, or is this kind of set up and knocked down right in one issue, which kind of feels underbaked to me? Or am I forgetting places where this was was hinted at before. Yeah, I don't know. No, certainly not in the Iron Man books. Okay. So I don't know. But if yeah, she was, I've seen her with these. Yeah, having these rings in like another book, maybe this was there. Mm-hmm. Again, this is a place that it feels like things were fast forwarded. Things that maybe were planned to be in multiple issues kind of get telescoped into one. So now we get. I could forgive this because it's sort of like they're the Mandarin rings, right? He was never a good guy, so. I'm not like shocked that these rings lead you to be a bad person. True, but it it just feels way too convenient to it feels very like the opposite of decompressed to just I guess that would be compressed now, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's more vocabulary at work. Very compressed to have it oh, the war the, the dragon says, you know, these things are bad and then they go bad and then the next scene she decides to get rid of them. Right? It's the entire Lord of the Rings saga, you know, Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings told in one comic issue. I'd say my beef is not so much with the idea that they corrupted her. My beef is with the idea of like, oh, these are really dangerous. Let's just let them go into space. That That's the part I took issue with. I'm like, you have these really dangerous corrupting rings and your solution is just make them somebody else's problem. I, I can't handle that. This doesn't seem very heroic. Really quickly, they decide to get rid of the rings and you know, a scene we don't get to see happen. There was some conversation we can imagine between Forge and Riri and uh, they use this crazy sextant at the front of uh, Forge's ship, and they shoot them into space, uh, which saying, and I think it's Riri saying this, it's off panel, so I can't tell for sure, maybe they'll end up where they're needed. So 
she's gotten rid of the rings and they're now free for whatever writer in the future to, you know, pick up one or more of the rings and tell a story about them. But really weird to just tell us how evil and bad a bad influence these rings are and then just scatter them around the universe. Why not? Next time I get a handgun, I'm just going to be like, oh, this is too dangerous. Let me leave it at the bus stop. No big deal. <laughs> Put this on the bench in the park. It, you know, it'll yes. Maybe it'll find it way to someone who needs it. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty awful. I, I don't feel like this is very heroic, and I don't, I don't know. It just, it irks me the way they, they dealt with this, and it also feels a bit like, you know, I don't know much about this character. I, I sort of know her from the movie, but I don't know how much, like, comic time she gets, but it feels like they somebody had this great idea, like, oh, let's get her the Mandarin rings. That'll be a great, you know, thousand story some, some way to, <laughs> development. To make her different from the other armored characters you give yeah. her own her own thing yeah and then like five issues later they're like i yeah, have no idea way. what to do with this let's just get rid of these things. <laughs> shoot them into space flush them down the toilet so now we get another time jump our third one of the issue uh riri and forge fly all these new ships which now we can definitely see those are those are robot parts there uh they first to mars and then to earth and we're told in tony's narration boxes that they intentionally made all their actions really obvious to orcas uh, we're not. Sh- I'm not sure where this is going. Presumably, Tony has some kind of trick up his Mysterium sleeve, but there's some misdirection going on. We, we see that happen. That you know, this this little bit here connects to X Men as well, which is kind of nice. Do you have any idea what uh, what he's planning here? Any guesses? Um, get a bunch of Orcas people here and then kick their butt with his big Voltron suit. That's <laughs> the best I've got. That's pretty straightforward, but it could be. Yeah. Uh, so now we, we jump to our third story, this issue, which is just a little tag. Uh, it's at the Orca satellite, the Bloom. Although it doesn't say the Bloom in the text, we know the Bloom when we see it. Uh, we come in right at the end of a meeting between the robots and Dr. Stasis, Phalong, and Firestar. We know from uh, Rise of the Powers of X that the robots will eventually turn on Stasis and Phalong, but we don't know what happens in the future with Firestar. Maybe she's the other person in, da- in uh, Xavier's No Place team. Could be. Uh, in any event, we see Firestar planting the idea that she had secret contacts in the X-Men and that she knows that Stark's ships are headed for the Australian outback, which is a place that the X-Men did hang out for a, a few years at the end of the 80s, so there's a connection there. Uh, Phalong says that, quote, every sentinel on Earth will be waiting for them there. So we're very much set up to expect that this is false information and Orcus is being manipulated, but like all of its forces in one place so that somewhere else is left unguarded. That, that I think is probably the most, the most likely path. And then our cliffhanger is we see yet another Logan bot made from an adamantium, adamantium skeleton that Wolverine left behind. And we've seen these a bunch of times now, so didn't really make that much of an impact on me. Maybe if you have some Iron Man only readers who aren't keeping up with the rest of the X books, this would be more exciting for them. But, you know, one more Logan bot doesn't really, you know, move the needle for me. So, yeah, that's that's the book. It's not bad. I think uh, I think it's my favorite book of the week, in fact. Uh, it doesn't have any sense of being like one complete issue. It's, it's a collection of mostly okay scenes strung together with three big time skips. And, yeah, I really wonder if in Jerry Duggan's original notes, these were supposed to be like three or four issues instead of just this one. That's, that's what it feels like to me. Uh, I do enjoy uh, Andrea DeVito's art. He has a lot of range to cover this issue. Dream sequence, wars, space dragon, love scene. Uh, to me, it all looks great. Facial expressions are a little exaggerated, not too much, uh, appropriate for char- comic book characters. Uh, I particularly like Riri and that one panel where the rings are affecting her. 
right? We don't, again, it's a very, as an emotional beat, it's very quick, but it's drawn well. She, she kind of looks like Anakin about to slaughter the younglings. She's got that, that, uh, I'm going to kill them all look on her face. So full points for the art. Story is okay. Again, just feels kind of insignificant when we know that this invasion, unless there's timey-wimey nonsense, isn't actually going to defeat Orcus. Because we've already seen that before in Fall and Rise. And yeah, that negatively affects my enjoyment of the issue. So I'm going to give Invincible Iron Man number 14 eh, a 6.8 out of 10. Yeah, I can't go much higher than that. I'll just join you there. I didn't know what to score this as. It's fine. It's just not what I was hoping for based on kind of the excitement I had at the end of last week. And it seems like at some, in what was it, the Fall of the House of X? I think one of the like notes in there was about how, you know, see the two issues Iron Man. Right. That <laughs> takes up place to it. So after, maybe, I think it was after 15. So after this one yeah. and after the next one. So I, I just wonder if maybe like this was supposed to come out and the next issue was supposed to come out and then the, you know, the fall was supposed to happen and just something happened with publication timing that they missed the schedule and now it all feels weird. Well, but. they actually accelerated the Iron Man release schedule. I think 12 and 13, I think 13 came out really quickly after 12. So it felt like they were trying to get these issues out the door fast. So yeah, something felt a little off there. Yeah. If, if I think there's some good ingredients here, if they had been spread out a little more, given the, the room they needed to cook, and maybe if this had come out before we were in this era and I didn't already see the future, you know, this could have been a, you know, a perfectly fine, you know, eight, eight plus kind of story, but just it, it loses its luster because of the way it's being told. All right, on to our next book, which is X-Men number 30, Who Says Romance is Dead? Written once again by Jerry Duggan, art by Phil Noto, ooh, Phil Noto, letters by Clayton Cowles, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So, Ruben, quick pop quiz. How does Jerry Duggan begin this issue of X-Men? <laughs> I'm telling you, man, like this is the new mandate every issue. Oh my god. For the next hundred issues, dream sequence. It's a dream sequence. <laughs> That's three in a row for him. Fall of the House of X number one, Invisible Iron Man 14, X-Men number 30, all of them starting with a dream sequence. And come on, man, you, also, you are I in also, a rut. Yeah. I also want to laugh about the uh you know, it's a sexy dream sequence. So as I was reading it, that's what I really noticed. I was like, man, this this is like a lot of like comic book sex that's happening this week. <laughs> it is, yeah. I felt like, you know, prudish gym, right? Like I was like, this is a bit much for me. I don't, I don't need all this. We do see books. less than we saw of uh, Nightcrawler. I mean, th those silhouettes were a little more explicit than this. But yeah, this is, uh, you know, Bill Noto draws some sexy, sexy people. And you know, I guess that's what he's good at. So uh, Jerry Duggan's next issue that is another issue of X-Men that comes out in just two weeks and, and Ruben, I'm telling you now, if that issue starts with a dream sequence, you may be doing this podcast solo because I might have to retire. I don't know if I can handle a fourth dream sequence in a row. Yeah. Uh, well, you heard it here first, guys. I've, I've cracked the code. It's the new <laughs> That's how you get control of the, uh, the sound effects here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, uh, what was it, Miss Marvel, where I like, I lost my shit over like the 16 page dream sequence yeah, <laughs> yeah. we saw the back there was like something that was advertising it and they were like you know very popular writer whatever her name is you know mm -hmm. superstar writer whatever oh, her name the, is it was the actress who was the yeah the co-writer on that yeah so she's a superstar because she cracked the dream sequence note she was like this is all the people I mean, want in their jerry duggan's stealing sequences. from the best right yeah from uh, absolutely want some of that ms marvel uh, hype that, that they have <laughs> So this dream sequence itself, I mean, this individual dream sequence on its own is not bad. 
right? It's only the fact that there's three of them in a row that makes you go, come on, man. Uh, this sequence is Cyclops dreaming of, you know, having some alone time with Jean, uh, similarly like we saw with in the real world with Tony and Emma. And we're left with the impression that maybe it isn't entirely a dream. Maybe it's Jean communicating with Scott from whatever her current status is from the White Hot, right? Very, very Phoenixy, very much fire stuff. And after the dream sequence, we see Scott talking to, uh, I think she's like a psychologist, psychiatrist, something of that nature. Her name is Dr. Goldsmith. And like everything else connected to Scott's trial, she doesn't make a damn bit of sense, right? Yeah. I, I kind of was like, why are they doing this? It seemed like they're trying to like clear him to like avoid a mental insanity defense, but they didn't seem to really care about doing the trial by the books. Right. Any other- it feels like Orcus is trying to make themselves look legitimate, but why do they have to do this? She's she's written as a very sympathetic character, sympathetic to Scott and two, and she tells Dr. Stasis, hey, Scott shows signs of torture, which you know, we've seen some of that, and says that he's suffered a psychotic break, where whether it's psychotic or he's just actually communicating with his sort of dead Phoenix wife, you know, who knows, the mutant book. <clears throat> Stasis says, hey, doctor, you'd better not put any of that nonsense in your report, or we'll go after your secret mutant family member. And in my mind, he doesn't even know of a particular mutant family member. He's just kind of assuming there is one and taking a shot. Everybody in the, in the, in the Marvel Universe has a secret mutant family member, so why not? And again, uh, yeah, this sequence feels kind of moot given that we've already seen the trial, but I've already ranted about that. The rest of this issue is a sequel to issue three of this volume of X-Men, an issue that came out all the way back in September of 2021. That issue was a more or less one-shot battle between the High Evolutionary and the X-Men. Had some minor connections to the Cordyceps Jones storyline, but more or less, it was its own thing. In that issue, the High Evolutionary did offer the human sterilizing, I'm going to pronounce it, Nihility Sphere as a present. Uh, the X-Men rudely rejected that gift and then got their asses kicked by the High Evolutionary and his daughter, Luminous, and his evolutionary guard of Animal Man. And as shown in this issue, the, the High E was impressed by Sink's power-barring abilities and agreed to call off the hostilities in issue three in exchange for one drop of Sink's blood, which we all expected was going to come back and haunt them one way or another. So in this issue, uh, well, first we're back in the Morlock Tunnels. And, uh, hey, weren't we expecting to see a connection between this issue and the last issue? Where last issue ended in the Morlock Tunnels, and the Morlock Tunnels were trashed. It looked like, you know, Aerosmith and Metallica had both been there partying, plus there was blood all over the floors. And the team that had been off to visit uh, Dr. Doom, they came back and they're horrified. And we were told, oh, you're going to find out next what happened to Sink and Talon. In this issue, we see everybody hanging out, being perfectly fine in the Morlock Tunnels, including Spider-Man and Gold Gold Goblin Norman Osborn, who I did yeah. not expect to see here. I was, yeah, all of this felt super weird to me. Can this, uh, this be explained? Issue? Because this is, <laughs> so, it feels like a giant continuity issue, and I'm not yeah. the continuity kid. I'm not looking back, you know, oh, 20 years ago, say so said something else. This was yeah. last month. How does it connect? <laughs> Same title. Yeah, I was really, I mean, taken as an issue. Mm -hmm, Yeah, mm -hmm. it doesn't. It doesn't. As a single issue, it was fine. I was like, this is kind of an okay story and it's a little tragic. But to your point, like, where did that blood come from? Yeah, at the end of last uh, episode, last podcast, I said, ooh, this is coming up. I'm really excited to see what's going on there. What happened in the Morlock Tunnels? And 
it's just Jerry Duggan thinks we why it feels like I care more about this than Jerry Duggan, who is the architect of this whole part of the story, which it feels wrong. Also, Norman Osborne, I know he's kind of a good guy now, but he's just thrown it out of nowhere because they need to just off panel. Uh, he created, again with the fast forward, feels like something was compressed here. We say, oh, he created a cure for the whole secret death thing in the magic mutant meds that Orcus corrupted. And they need to distribute this genetic cure to the entire population. And they say, hey, um, maybe we can remember that thing that the, uh, the high evolutionary was going to give us that would sterilize all the humans. Maybe we can rejigger that to instead spread the cure to all the humans, which is kind of a stretch, right? We're in the Marvel Universe. There's lots of genetic type people around, you know, even that uh, that that one uh, dinosaur guy that Spider-Man name checks. Sauron. Sauron, right. It feels weird to say, hey, we got to go to the high evolutionary, the guy who kicked our ass last time, and get that thing that was going to sterilize the humans. Weird, weird, weird conclusion to jump to that quickly. So, but anyway, that is a conclusion they jumped to. So, Sink and Talon, just the two of them, they head off to Counter Earth, which is where the high evolutionary lives. I don't know why they think the two of them can launch a frontal attack on the high evolutionary. High, I cannot say the damn name. High evolutionary on his home turf when he kicked their asses on Earth last time. And, and spoiler for the end of this issue, it doesn't go too well for them. Before the two of them get to Counter-Earth, we get a one-page scene of Firestar flying over the Atlantic Ocean, chatting with Tony Stark. And this is when Tony gives Firestar that tell him we're landing in Australia plan that we saw her repeat at the end of the Iron Man issue. And that's fine. I like that continuity. I guess we call it like horizontal continuity between two different titles. Firestar flying, she looks a whole lot flamier than usual. Is, does she ever look like this before when she's flying? It's a very different time. Yeah, I've never seen her completely engulfed in flame. She's very but... Johnny Storm here, right? It's an artistic choice, I guess. Struck me as a little odd. Not the biggest deal, but it, that's not how I generally see her flying. Uh, a bit later, we see Firestar on the Orcus Bloom space station giving that story to Phalong, which I guess that scene takes place right before the bit at the end of Iron Man. So again, nice tight continuity between uh, the two titles, which is weird when the continuity between consecutive issues of the same title is out the window. Uh, but now back to Counter-Earth. Here the story once again goes into fast forward mode. Sink and Talon fight the Animal Men, then they make friends with the Animal Men, then they sneak into the High, <laughs> evolution God, high Evolutionary's Palace and steal the Nihility Sphere. I can say that. All that takes literally a page and a half which this is moving yeah. as fast as a 1960s Stan Lee comic, right? Uh, they are caught by the high E and Luminary, <laughs> and they have a fight. Uh, Sink takes Luminary down, it says by using Karma's power. Yeah. Uh, but doesn't it seem more like he's using Mirage's power? Because he's, he's giving Luminary a vision that scares her? Yes. It feels like an editorial <laughs> oversight, like, oh, I meant to mention the other new mutant, but instead I got the name wrong. And somebody should have called it. It yeah. just feels off. Yeah. Uh, the scene closes with Sink and Talon attacking the High E directly. Uh, we don't get shown the end of the fight quite yet, but the omniscient narrator, again, might turn out to be future Ben Urich in a book, tells us the fight is over very quickly. And he also chooses just to use claws. Why? 
Like that's not of all the powers I would sync with to go sure. after high evolutionary. Not I like not Jean like, Grey or yes, or know, Karma, Karma, Mirage, whoever. he doesn't even get adamantium on his claws because he only gets like the genetic part of it, not the technological. So he's going yeah. after the high evolutionary with bone claws. Yeah, excellent point. Having with it, it's a cool looking panel. The two of them, you know, charging towards the their enemy with claws out, but strategically, yeah, yeah not not the not the optimal. So now we cut to Sink, and only Sink, back in the Morlock Tunnels, handing the Nihility Sphere to Tony Stark. Uh, he looks like, distinctly older than last time we saw him. He doesn't tell Tony, but we learn the truth, that they lost that fight against the High E. Talon was killed, and Sink used Jean Grey's abilities not to fight the High Evolutionary, just to <laughs> rescue Talon's mind and hide it inside his own. And I'm guessing doing that is kind of like what aged him, using his powers that yeah. not strongly. Very conveniently, the High E left Sink alive, gave him the Nihility Sphere that he was looking for, and teleported him back to Earth. Super fast forward again. So yeah, a really weird issue. Feels very strange to be calling back to the High Evolutionary now, because was anybody saying, oh, we gotta, we gotta go back to issue three and, you know, figure out what's going on with the Nihility Sphere? I don't <laughs> think that's what the, what the kids were talking about down at the rec center. Yeah, no. Uh, Duncan creates a premise for how they need a thing for him to fight Orcus. Pretty thin premise, could have been done a different way. Uh, the interesting bit here to me is Talon in Sink's mind. That's the best, mo most thought-provoking part of the issue, right? It is. It's a little tragic and makes you kind of think maybe this is what leads to him being the professor in the Rise of the Powers of X storyline, right? Could be. And we've speculated multiple times on how are they going to solve this whole two Laura's problem, right? We're not thinking we're going to go forward forever with young Laura and old Laura. So... Now we have one kind of dead. So yeah. is she just going to die? Like she's not going to be able to be put in a new body? Are they? Is she going to get merged into young Laura? So young Laura, a young body, but centuries of experience? That could be interesting. Or hey, yeah. maybe it all gets undone by the Moira engine or by Phoenix nonsense, and we solve the problem that way. We just clean the slate. Yeah. Would be kind of weird to deal with the idea of putting old Laura into young Laura's body, right? Mm -hmm. Because they are distinct people. Wouldn't that be sort of they've had, unfair Yeah, they've had the very different version. experiences. Yeah. Can, I, how does how would you hand wave that? Can you just like add it on? Like almost you could give like a second personality in her head, almost like a fire storm situation Yeah, where like the old lore gives advice. That could be fun. But again, we're going to reboot the whole X-Men universe in a couple months. So it doesn't seem like there's a lot of time for that to play out. Uh, the art looks great. You know, that's me. I always love the look of Phil Noto art. I know there's some people who it's not their thing, and I get that. Yeah, it's it's not my thing, but it's it's. I can tell that it's good. I just don't like the proportions that he uses. Very realistic, right? Yeah, and uh, he does. You know, he's the only artist on this whole book. He does. You know, I think it's a painting type thing. And so there's not like a a, a penciler and an inker and a colorist. It, it's all Phil Noto, and I, I I like seeing that one vision ending up on the on the page. His yeah. flaming fire star is an odd choice, but I'm okay with it. Uh, so score it. Don't think he realizes that fire star has microwave powers. <laughs> yeah, again, a couple plays in this issue where it felt like an editor should have flagged a couple things, but uh, but didn't. Yeah, she's wearing a tin foil suit. That's why it's uh, <laughs> it's oh, all in can't put tin foil in the microwave. Good good call. <laughs> So for me, bonus points for the talent developments and for the art, points off for the, the wacky pacing, for cramming in the high E for no really good reason, 
and especially for that glaring continuity error. And even if it's going to be explained eventually, there should be some kind of a, a hint now that, hey, there's something coming up to explain why this doesn't make sense given the end of the last issue. So put all that together, and I can't go any higher than a 5.5 out of 10. Oh, my Really God. annoyed. That, I was so looking forward to a thing, <laughs> and it's just, I don't understand how this doesn't connect. Yeah. So tell me why it's better than that. <laughs> With, without the well, Talon thing, it would have been an FU5. So that extra yeah. half point all comes from that that one scene. Yeah. Well, I hate to admit it. I'm probably approaching this with the amount of care and appreciation that Duggan did. Like I forgot about the um, you know, the the seemingly crime scene in the Morlock Tunnel panel mm, that we had right. in the last issue. So I was like, okay, whatever, yeah, all this makes sense to me. But now that I know about that, I'm just like, yeah, that was a pretty big problem. <laughs> uh the pacing, I, the pacing is weird, but it seemed to be that he was trying to say like it's weird because maybe it's from kind of old Laura's perspective and her she doesn't seem to have perfect memory of what happened. Maybe that's that's yeah. a generous interpretation, but maybe. Yeah, the the art is you know it's not my thing, but it is definitely distinct, and I could follow the action, so that was that was good. I don't know. I'm gonna say I'm gonna give this a six. I I didn't hate it as much as you. I was not Fair as enough. upset as you, but I think all your criticisms are very valid. And um, yeah, maybe it's because I don't care about this. I'm getting to the point again where I don't really care about the X-Men title, which is not where you want an yeah, X-Men fan to be, right? Yeah, especially the, the writer is the architect of, you know, the whole the whole line right now. Yeah. Oh, that's a bummer. I uh, just felt like the, the, the tragic thing, I'm, I'm giving a lot of points because of the twist at the end. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I kind of feel like, oh, that sucks. Like, Sink's got, it makes him a little bit more desperate, right? Like, he's got his mind and he's got his lover's mind. Very much the best part of the book by far. But yeah, once again, just like in Iron Man, it kind of feels like multiple issues were, you know, Reader's Digest condensed books kind of crammed together. That's why we had these, these just giant jumps. Like that, like the whole trip to the high evolution, that could have been one or two or even more issues on its own. But instead, we kind of get, it feels like a recap of a story we've seen before, except we haven't seen it before. Okay, that's enough about that book. Now we're on to a brand new title. Cable number one. This issue is called United We Fall, written by Fabian Nisaiza, pencils by Scott Eaton, inks by Cam Smith with Victor Nava, and colors by Hava Tartaglia. So yeah, that's four people to do the art on this issue, as opposed to the one in the last issue. But you know, different books get made different ways. Letters by Joe Sabino, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So Ruben, I'm going to tell you a story. Tell me if this reminds you of anything. Cable, he's being held prisoner by Orcus. He gets rescued from them in the first scene, and then he and his rescue, rescuer determine Earth, oh, it's under a threat entirely separate from Orcus. This is a subtle psychological threat, and its source is an enemy that Cable has encountered before. I've never read that book before. It sounds awesome. <laughs> it's brand new, right? <laughs> but yeah, that is Cable number one, and it's also, of course, Children of the Vault. The yeah. exact same premise as the miniseries that just finished. What yeah. the hell? That's all Cable can do, man. <laughs> this issue reads like it's maybe even less connected to the current main X-Men story than Children of the Vault was at a time where, you know, we were, for Children of the Vault, we were at a time where we had just had the Gala massacre. Things were kind of wacky. You could throw in a little, let's do a side story here. But right now, I'm not ready for any side stories. I want to know where this story's going, where the big story's going. And yeah, this book doesn't even feel to me like a current era story. It feels to me a whole lot more like one of those 
classic writer, revisits a classic era stories, right? Because Fabian Nisaiz has been writing X-Men for a long time. So it reminds me of like uh, David Michelini's Venom Lethal Protector, Peter David's Joe Fix-It, those kind of things, which can be fun. I, I did read an interview with uh, Fabian Nisaiz in, uh, as always, it's the one, the X-Men Mondays on Adventures in Port Taste. This was back in December. And he insists this was always going to be a current era Fall of X story. But he also says that when he agreed to do the book, he barely knew anything about Young Cable. Said he hadn't <laughs> read a single issue of the Duggan Phil Noto Cable series until after he signed the contract and he was prepping to write this book. It's good to know that's how it actually works because we always speculate that these writers yeah. don't know I shit mean, about these characters. We sit around <laughs> reading comic books all day because that's the kind of nerds we are. But, you know, that's. Yeah. It's different. It's like, uh, you know, you hear, that's why like, fans are so more loyal to their sports teams than the athletes are to those teams. Yeah. Because the yeah. athletes know they're going to change teams over the course of their career where, you know, we're yeah. loyal. I would love to know if Fabian Nisaiza has read Children of the Vault. I'm, best, I'm betting he hasn't, man. Why, why would he? If he has, then it, if, he ha- if he has, then it's plagiarism. If he hasn't, yeah. then it's just really funny. That's got to be on the editors, right? They should once again look yeah. at this and be like, "Yeah, we already just published this." Like, <laughs> yeah, give us a different, different story. Yeah. <sighs> so, uh, yeah, again, maybe we can have some fun with this because there was some good stuff in the book, uh, especially the first scene. For me, the first scene is really awesome. It's Cable rescuing Nate, and I'm going to call young Cable Nate. I'm going to try to stick with that just to make it clear. You know, Cable, the old guy; Nate, the young kid. So this first sequence is Cable fighting a Stark Sentinel at night. And we've seen, you know, mutant versus Stark Sentinel battles a lot, but I think this is my favorite. Uh, The art looks amazing. I love the Hava Tartaglia colors. They're really deep and dramatic and really give the feeling of, oh, this is happening at night with some some strange artificial lighting. The the, the reds and the blues to me look great. Cable destroys the Sentinel. Uh, then he busts into the Gyrich Center, uses his techno-organic virus to manifest a big friggin' gun. Do you know, is that something that Cable's done before, like use his TO to make a physical gun? No, it seems a little beyond what I was aware he could do, but... He's Cable, okay. right? He's it's pretty cool. We don't know where in his personal timeline he, he gets new new techniques, new powers. Um, yeah, it, again, it looks cool enough. I'm not going to complain, but I am wondering... Is this laying the groundwork for this power to come back later at a big time? It was like, oh, we've seen that yeah. before. Or maybe it's just a cool thing to throw in once. Either way, fine by me. I struggle a bit with the um, just the art and the sequencing in this entry, intro part. Okay. So we see uh, Orca Sentinel standing in the water. Then we see Cable standing at the feet of that Sentinel. We see him kind of coming up out of the water and then coming up at the and foot of the Sentinel. And then we see now. a helicopter and then we see a hand coming out of the water. So... Is that Cable's hand yes. coming out of the water? But so he he snuck up on the sentinel at its feet, was looking at it, and then he was back underwater and came up a second time. No, I only see him because Cable isn't. I think in the first panel, Cable is still under the water. He's sneaking up. I think there was a scene in one of the Rambo movies where Rambo kind of rises up out of the water and starts kicking mm-hmm. ass. I think that's what's mm-hmm. supposed to go on here. Is that Cable even says that you know he's wearing a telekinetic sheath to keep himself dry? Little little full body condom okay. situation, like in. Uh, that Frank so you think movie. the scene where you see the sentinel hand and Cable kind of looking up at it, he's under the water? Because that comes before the hand out of the water scene. No, this is a two-page spread. So I'm reading the top half of it's happening first and the bottom half is happening second. Maybe if you're looking just the left side versus the right side, it seems that way. But I, I think that the if you look at the whole double-page spread, as you know, like it would be on a physical 
comic book, I think it's pretty clear that him standing out of the water is after the hand. I see. Maybe it's the review copy I've got then. This has a sequence yeah, strong. I, I, I think that, that is. I have, the, I have the comicsology copy, and it presents these two pages as one big page. Makes it much more clear. Cable figures out that Nate has been moved to a barge in the East River. Cable goes to that barge, kicks some more ass, and finally finds Nate. And when Nate asks, hey, who's, who's down there? Or he's you know, being trapped somewhere. Cable says, the ghost of Christmas future and past and present, which I think that's a pretty good line for time traveler, timey-wimey Cable. So yeah, I, I like that scene a lot. For me, the rest of the book's kind of downhill. Uh, Cable tells Nate not to bother with that whole fall of X orcus nonsense, even though he does have you know, Nate point out, you know, they killed my kind of mom, Gene, uh, and they're about to execute my dad, so maybe I should care about it, but no, Cable says, no, 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 we have bigger fish to fry, namely this group called the Neocracy. Uh, Cable says he's fought this nefarious force before, which made me think it was a thing from Marvel continuity. But but no, it's it's the first time it was ever mentioned on the pages of a comic book. So it's in Cable's past, but not the Marvel past. Which I think is a weaker a weaker maneuver. Like I could mm-hmm. forgive some of this if this was like a threat that we knew was a real threat, right? Yeah. When I Googled it, I was expecting this to be a Fabian Nisaiza, you know, villain from the past that he was revisiting, but it's just created to be even the, the name kind of sounds like the whole deal with the children of the vault, right? It's just, oh, we're, we're these brand new neo-humans, neocracy, very samey. Uh, Cable sees this group named in a graffiti tag, then uses an old friend named Irene Merriweather, who is a long-running Baby Nessie's a character, uh, uses her, who she used to be a reporter, to track down the graffiti artist. And then from the artist, they go and they find a PR agent who paid him to put that on the building. Uh, they kidnap that lady, who's just like some schlub in a marketing department, and from there, they get a tip to go back to a company named Parvenu, which is an interesting name, because it's a word that means like somebody who was suddenly risen out of obscurity to a position of power and influence, and it's usually used as an insult. You call someone a Parvenu, it's almost like calling them Nouveau Riche, like, oh, you just, you've risen out of nowhere, you haven't really proven yourself, you've been given a position that you don't really deserve weird name. So the two cables now need to go kick some more ass at Parvenu, but first it's time for lunch. They have, uh, and this feels, this is product placement right here, I'm telling you. They have sandwiches at a deli and pizza place in Montclair, New Jersey called probably Bel Giovini's. It's a real place. I grew up only one town over from Montclair, but I don't think I've ever been to this restaurant. Uh, I texted a friend who still lives there and he says, yep, he's been there and they do sell really big as your head sandwiches, just like Cable says here. So I'm thinking Nisaiza, who is a, a Jersey guy, uh, born in Argentina, but moved to Jersey when he was a kid, went to college at Rutgers, still lives there. I'm guessing he's a big fan of this place, and I hope he gets like a, a free slice of pizza or something, because this is this is a really good ad. This better be framed over their cash register. Yes. Very funny. Yes. So anyway- Endorsed oh, by Cable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have like Frank Sinatra picture and then Cable yeah. next to him. That'd be perfect. So over lunch- uh, at Belgiovini's, a uh, uh, free small drink if you mention this ad. Uh, over lunch, Cable tells Nate about this awful neocracy group, and it feels like something we've seen before. Uh, they, they're kind of making everybody the same, kind of Harrison Bergeron kind of thing. Everybody's equal, but they're also now made into perfect beings of energy who can travel anywhere in the universe, like the, the, the cosmos, the microverse, anywhere, which as Eva plans go, it doesn't sound all that bad, right? 
Yeah. But we need an enemy, and this is who it is. You lose your individuality. I, I guess so. But yeah, it, again, feels kind of kind of half-baked to me. Uh, if you're Polaris, you'd grab this character and bring him, bring him to Earth to fight Orcas. That'd be a good strategy. <laughs> yeah, they are not, not too different from the Brood. I mean, they, they look <laughs> nicer than the Brood, but some similarity. Uh, Cable and Nate head off to Parvenu. They go in guns blazing, scaring the living crap out of a poor security guard. who He doesn't know what's going on. I feel bad for that guy. They do find some creepy alien types there who are early versions of the energy being things. Kind of intriguingly, they have traces of mutant DNA in them from Slack, from Glob, and from Random. Which, if I felt like this was really connected to the larger story, I'd say, oh, is, is this a Mr. Sinister thing? Where did the DNA come from? I'd be surprised if it really actually pays off, but maybe. Yeah, that is a good question. Where did you get the samples? Because a DNA is clearly a huge thing in, in the Krinkoan era, so it should mean something, but probably not. Uh, Cable and Nate beat up the energy beings. They make it to the boss level. A guy named Dr. Paul Duval, a.k.a. the Grey Gargoyle. Now, Ruben, are you a, a longtime big Grey Gargoyle stan? Well, he's been around a long, long time. Just over 100 previous appearances, according to the wiki. He was created by Stan and Jack all the way back in Journey into Mystery, number 107, June 1964. First appearance was as a Thor villain. But yeah, he's been around for a long time. He's been in Acts of Vengeance, Dark Reign. Most recently, he was in the Sins Rising arc of Amazing Spider-Man, which maybe that's what you're thinking of. So yeah, he pops up here and there. His deal is that he was a scientist who accidentally spilled some chemicals on himself. A lot of, a lot of that going on back in the 60s. He doesn't get super speed, though. Uh, he gets turned into, he gets the ability to touch himself with his right hand. I've don't, got that ability. Don't get dirty. <laughs> don't go there. And he turns himself into living stone. Oh, again, don't don't get dirty there. And that's why he's the gray gargoyle. It touches, you know, You're saying he gets hard? Oh, good grief. It's the family show. Like I said, I have this power. <laughs> Sorry, uh, guys. Yeah, so yeah, he, he turns into this nasty gargoyle-looking monster, and he also has the ability to touch other people with his right hand <laughs> and do the same thing with them, which I'm pretty sure I've seen in a movie sometime. <clears throat> So, yeah, that's the big cliffhanger at the end of this issue is the transformation into the Grey Gargoyle. And, yeah, that I, I don't care about the Grey Gargoyle. I don't care about the Neocracy. Yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't really. He looks kind of coolish, but I have a hard time. Like, he's not a character where I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a threat, right? Mm -hmm. You see a splash page, I'm like, okay, there's a guy. He's got some gray skin. Yeah, even in his recent appearances, he's always like the member of some, like, not the Sinister Six, but like some some group of villains, and he's like, oh, one more of this group of villains. On his own, he's like, oh, he's just yeah. some schlub. I just imagine the next issue being like both of them shooting him and then he's done. Because, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's not a character where you can just be like, oh, shit, it's the Grey Gargoyle. Right. He doesn't feel like he should be a match for two cables. Not even one cable, but even, even two of them. So, yeah, I, I like the art here a lot. Uh, the early part especially. rest is fine, too. I like Nisseiza's voice for Cable. You know, just the way he talks. He's world-weary, world-weary, all about the job, been around the block more times than the rest of us can even imagine. Yeah, I just don't care at all about the story. Feels like a less interesting, less well-told version of the story we just freaking got in Children of the Vault. So this would be like an okay but not great book at any time. If you make this into one of those flashback stories, like, like Venom Lethal Protector, it'd be okay. Slotting this in now with a fall of the House of X trade dress on the cover, and then just having Cable tell Nate, 
yeah, don't worry about any of that crap. This is more important. It just makes it feel like like nonsense. So yeah, despite my enjoyment of the art, I'm going to give Cable number one a plain old five out of ten. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I told you, I was going to crank it this week. This week. Yeah. I'm going to give this one just a straight six. I, mm-hmm. Everything you're saying, it doesn't matter. It's true. I enjoyed the banter between young and it old Cable. Matter. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. But I am. I have kind of wanted to see the two cables together, and it oh, yeah. did. It did make me feel like good a little bit that like when we saw you know an old one and a young one both get captured, it wasn't like a mistake. Yes, they are both in play. Good point. Which hasn't been really clarified. I still don't exactly understand how this works because, and maybe they're never going to answer that right. Like we had the young cable. Mm-hmm. Was it in? What was it? It was X-Men Red, maybe? And then he was like, or maybe it was Sword. Maybe it was the end of Sword. But in any event where he was like, you know, yeah, I don't have the skills. We need to get the old guy back. And then he just disappeared. Like, I I really don't, it seemed like they couldn't be in the same place at the same time. And yet now they are. So, I I don't know. That Mm -hmm. that part's really weird. I was excited. I mean, when I opened the book and I saw in the cast of characters that had, you know, Cable and Cable, I was very happy. I even took a screenshot of that and sent it off to the Slack. Hey everybody out there! You should you know join the Patreon, join the Slack, and I was I was really happy because I wanted to see these two together, but the story did not live up to it. Oh well. This new this new big threat is not that interesting. It's like a way less interesting Children of the Vault, and the parallels are crazy. It, like you said, it is sort of like a watered down version of what was pretty much a niche story in the first place. Which we really liked that story. It was our our top miniseries from that collection of miniseries, but we don't need a worse version of it especially now when everything should be so focused. Uh, again, I'm thinking back to the original House and Powers, where that was the only thing that was happening, and every issue was an event and tied in and pointed towards something big happening. This is just so unfocused, and I, I really yeah. wonder what Marvel's thinking is, why they didn't just decide, hey, let's end this the way we started it, with two tight continuity series to really finish with a bang. They probably said, hey, We'll make more money if we don't, if we ha- yeah. put these others in. And that's that's a bummer. I understand yeah. it, but it's a bummer. Well, that's this week's issues. Uh, uh, my favorite, I, I think yours as well, was uh, Invincible Iron Man. That was a, a pretty good book. It had its flaws, yep. but it had some cool stuff. The others, you were less negative than I was. Uh, <laughs> next week- I we- liked Gable better, I'll say. I, X-Men was kind of obnoxious, but um, it got worse once you told me about the continuity issue. Fair enough. Uh, so next week, we have two issues coming up. We have X-Force number 48, which is called Target Beast. It's crazy that it's 2024 and we're still trying to wrap up this Beast Gone Bad storyline, which it felt like it wrapped up like three times already, but yeah. you know, going at it once again. We also have the Resurrection of Magneto number one. Um, and again, this is- Who's probably, writing that? This is Al Ewing. Okay. So That's exciting. We I'm like Al Ewing. He's going back to- it's very much in his X-Men Red kind of storytelling situation. Yeah. It will, I expect, still be in that limbo period before Fall of the House of X that I've been not crazy about revisiting, but I I have faith that Al Ewing will do something more interesting there than some other writers. So let's hope he comes up with a satisfying way to resurrect that mutant who didn't want to get resurrected. Yes. And that's- Maybe I'll get my... Uh- <laughs> By Abigail Brands. Oh, don't even tease me that way. <laughs> Return. My hopes will be dashed, but that would be so awesome. Abigail Fanagawudulibudulum Brand. I w- yeah. yeah. Mm. Maybe oh, she'll Ruben. be like, we need, we need Magneto to fight against Orca. <laughs> yeah, call. Well, 
uh, we can't even call in uh, Fisher King to bring her back because he's dead. Yeah. So maybe somebody else knows where Fisher King sent a- Abigail. <laughs> wow, that's that's something to think about this week. And and while we're all thinking about how cool it would be to see Abigail Brand again, Ruben, <laughs> what might our our lovely listeners do with themselves besides touch themselves with the right hand and turn to rock? Uh, read more X Men comics. That's what you should be how doing. Dead. You do that. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>